My name is Utah Phillips, and this is Loafer's Glory, the hobo jungle of the mind. Rhythm Blues, I am the boogeyman, the woogeyman, catches catch can, the rabbit, the monkey, blue hard, blue slick, blue slow, blue quick, blue cool, blue hot, everything I am, everything I'm not, slave boy, Leroy from Newark Hill, if capitalism don't kill me, racism will. That was Rhythm Blues, recited by the poet Amiri Baraka. Uh, That's because uh, we're recording this, uh, we're in the studio here, at the beginning of Black History Month, the month of February. My name is Utah Phillips, and I'm in the studio here with Steve Baker, the engineer and the conductor and the brakeman and the switchman on this run. We are in the community station, our little town of Nevada City, KVMR, a voice of reason in a sea of insanity. We are a little lost town up in the Sierra, my hometown. I was out yesterday, saw the mayor of the town uh, pulling a giant log chain down the middle of Broad Street. I asked him why he was pulling that chain down the street. He said, why, you ever try to push one of these things? Well, Black History Month. Where do I begin? Jet Sampson, as he came to be known, was seven years old when he and his mother and father and three brothers were walking on the beach, and they were tricked aboard a slave ship and brought to the American South. Jet Sampson lived until 1941. He died at the age of 105. What he knew, he taught to his granddaughter, Bessie Jones, I knew Bessie Jones, and I worked with her at folk festivals and at children's festivals around the country. She learned from Jet Sampson all the old play party songs, the clapping games that they played back in the slave times. And she taught them to children out on the Georgia Sea Islands where she lived. And then she began to teach them to kids all over the country. She was, And she was stern about it. She was full of love and full of life. But, well, friends, I can remember her saying, I want you to sing it now. And in saying it, I don't want you to say it nicely. I want you to say it just like I say it. Say bucket. Say bucket. All right. I want you to say that bucket as flat as I say bucket. That's it. That's the old slave game that we had to do at that time. Well, let's listen to Frog in a Bucket, Bessie Jones and a, and a bunch of kids. And then when she learned from her grandfather from Africa called Juba. Draw me a bucket of water for my old dog. We got nothing. We are on our You go on the sister Sally. Draw me a bucket of water for my You say for the meal, you give me the hush. You cook on the bread, you give me the crust. You fry the meat, you give me the skin. And that's why my mom was so and then you juba, juba up, 
Jones. I do miss her. Loved what she was able to do with children, getting them moving um, and getting them to acting, getting them to making sounds rather than sitting in front of a video display terminal playing video games or whatever happens now. Let me take you to the small auditorium at Carnegie Hall. We were doing a show about the history of railroading. You know my passionate love for the trains. You can imagine the consternation of the uh, the staff there, the stagehands at uh, that, that newly refurbished hall when uh, about 12 very old black men began to carry in some narrow-gauge railroad rails and weighed several hundred pounds apiece and were preparing to nail them to the new floor of that stage. Well, they just had a fit. Finally, they had to figure out how to raise them up on uh, on logs or get them off of the floor because, you see, these were gandy dancers. These were old gandies, black men who worked on the railroad in the south, and they used uh, irons. They used lining irons to line up the tracks so that it was straight, so that the rails were parallel. And while they did that, they sang. Uh, the, the leader of them, he... He actually talked about what I would call passive resistance because, you see, they would take out their grievances on the foreman by putting it into the songs that they used to keep the rhythm of lining the track. Uh, the, the foreman was called the Dead Eye. Well, he'll explain that to you here. Let's listen to the, the Georgia Gandys at Carnegie Hall. The, the caller stands more or less ahead of me. The foreman, he stands down, and he is saying, we call the foreman the Dead Eye. Because you didn't have the instruments that you have now. It was purely done on eyesight. So he had to be looking down. Now, uh, at times, you know, people have feelings. And, you know, you can get frustrated. And you couldn't just tell a man or walk up to him and you know, give him a good cushion. So you did it through song. And he got the message. <laughs> So if you wanted to talk about him, you know, and uh, there's nothing he could do about it because he wants to get the work done. And see, most railroad men, we carried watches. We knew what time the train was due. And we were aggravated. I don't think there's any more mischievous person been on the railroad tonight. And uh, this is a call that we would talk about him. And at the same time, we were making a problem for him. Captain can't read and the captain can't write. How in the hell can you tell when the track is right? Captain can't read, the captain can't write. How in the hell can you tell when the track is right? Now he knows that you're talking about it. <laughs> but what can he do? He can't retaliate. 
Now, it's getting on close to lunchtime, and uh, he's still trying to get his track right. But you have to suggest to him now it's time for me to go to eat. And I'm a little bit hungry. So, uh, we were singing songs like this. Pull charge, turn the beans, collar, green peas, right on the side. Well, the Georgia Gandys, it was a pure pleasure to work with them and then to stand in the stairwell out in the back because they wouldn't let smoking in the auditorium and just talk and talk about those times and talk about the future. You know, when I was a kid, we had very few black heroes. Well, those of us that were growing up in progressive families, uh, people part of the CIO, part of the Communist Party, part of the progressive movement, as I say, we did. We we knew about uh, Marcus Garvey. We knew about Booker T. Washington, and so on. But but there are very few popular or well-known black heroes. One of the principal ones when I was a boy was the Brown Bomber, Joe Lewis. Of course, Joe Lewis had been uh, knocked out. He'd been defeated in the fifteenth round by um, by Max Schmeling who was a, a fighter very, very much favored by Adolf Hitler. He was a German boxer. Of course, when Lewis lost a fight, uh, Hitler touted that as the superiority of the Aryan race over the black race. Well, the rematch took place in Madison Square Garden, the Lewis Schmeling fight. What you're going to listen to now is Arthur Slater, a very old man from Coffeyville, Alabama, population 431. And he's telling about how all him and all the other kids ran through the village to the home that had the only radio in town to hear the Lewis Schmeling fight. And then I got a surprise for you. I'm Arthur Slater, born here in Coffeyville, Alabama, in Clark County, March 24, 1929. I remember the first radio that, that, that came to Coffeyville that we were uh, exposed to. Mr. Miller Howes had a radio, and everybody in the community went to listen to that radio when Joe Lewis was going to fight. And uh, that was a big kick for us. Uh, we enjoyed that. He, I never will forget one night we ran all the way from home down to his house to hear Joe Lewis fight. And when he went in the ring, he knocked the man out in about four seconds after he was in the ring. And we made a big run for nothing. Uh, but we had fun doing that. Uh, that, was, that was a lot of fun to us because that's the only thing we did have that we got fun out of. Uh, we had to do a, 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 our work. And, and what, we are, what we were being taught was to how to do the job not manage the job. The white would manage the job and we would do the work. So they couldn't say future farmer. They had to say Negro farmer. Along with Lewis this time, although in the last fight I selected Schmelling. As a matter of fact, I want him to win because I want to be the first fighter to regain the heavyweight championship. Max Schmeling. I'm feeling comfortable and in good shape. My walk here at the training camp has put me in the best of condition. Fifteen rounds for the world's heavyweight championship. 
right and left to the head, a left to the jaw, a right to the head, and Donovan is watching carefully. Lewis measures him, right to the body, a left up to the jaw, and Schmeling is down. The count is five, five, six, seven, eight. The men are in the ring. The fight is over on a technical knockout. Max Schmeling is beaten in one round. Oh, well, that was your surprise. I didn't know I still had that. Now, listen, listen, uh, black history. This happened at a time that the United States, Britain, France, all of the Western powers were letting the Nazis and the fascists in Italy do their dirty work by tearing apart the, the, uh, the Republic of Spain, the Spanish Republic, you know. It needs to be known as surely as the story of Crispus Attucks that the first blow against fascism in this country was struck by a black man, Joe Lewis. Well, now, I used to work at festivals at the University of Chicago, around the Midwest, around the East, with people like uh, Mississippi Fred McDowell, Robert Pete Williams, Robert Jr. Lockwood. It was um, some years into it that I, I finally ran into Martin Bogan and Armstrong, now, they, like Mississippi Fred McDowell explained, they made their living doing house parties, and most of those house parties were rent parties where one family didn't have enough money to pay the rent on their slum tenement, and so you'd have a party, and everybody would bring food, and they would bring the music, and that way you could pay that person's uh, family's rent for that month, and then next month or next week, it was somebody else's turn. Uh, Martin Bogan and Armstrong, well... They played a, an eclectic gathering of music. I mean, uh, uh, Armstrong could sing in ha- uh, Hawaiian. He could speak Chinese. He was a, a fine artist. I mean, they were they were black vaudeville performers, and that was at the time of the TOBA, the Theater of Black Arts. It was uh, the alternative, uh, the segregated part of the vaudeville circuit, TOBA. Of course, they, the musicians called it tough on black asses. Well, right now we're gonna we're gonna listen to Martin Bogan and Armstrong doing one of those house parties song called Let's Have a Party. I'll buy the whiskey. I'll buy the beer. You buy the beer. Now let's give a party. Let's give a party. Give it on me. Give it on me. I can't take it. I can't take it. I'm drunk, you see. You drunk, I see. Oh, me. Oh, me. Oh, my. Oh, my. Oh, you. Oh, you. Zoo, zoo, zoo. Zoo, zoo, zoo. I can't dance. I can't dance. Yeah, take a chance. Fred, take a chance. I can't dance. I can't dance. That ain't in my pants. That's in my pants. I guess it's Mr. Armstrong was the one of the 
band that's still living, and he works now as Louis Blue uh, with Jimmy Borsdorf uh, from up there in Marysville, California, backing him up. A very, very important musician, just a, a fine human being. Malcolm X taught me, taught all of us, <clears throat> three very important things. One, that white people, well, we wear our racism like our skeletal structure. Two, no matter how much we hate racism and fight against it, we still benefit from it. And three, white people have never had to learn about black people. But in order to survive, black people have had to learn about white people. So they know more about us than we do about them. So how do we learn about black people? How do we find out what racism is and how it works? We ask. My friends, it is arrogant but typical that white people, us, believe that we have the right to define what racism is and then legislate on that definition, which of course is always in our interest. No, the people who experience the problem, sexism, racism, disability, it is the people who experience the problem who define it for us, not the people who create the problem. We must learn to go to those who experience racism and ask them what it is and how it works, and then we should just shut up and listen. Malcolm X, final speech. I was in Africa. I read about them over there. If you'll notice, they referred to the rioters as vandals, uh, hoodlums, thieves. They tried to make it appear that this wasn't, they tried to make it, they, and they, they did this. They skillfully took the burden off the society for its failure to corrupt, to uh, correct these negative conditions in the black community. Took, took the burden completely off the society and put it right on the community by uh, using the press to make it appear that the looting and all of this was the proof that the whole act was nothing but vandals and robbers and thieves who weren't really interested in anything other than that which was negative. And I saw here many old, dumb, brainwashed Negroes who parrot the same old party line that the man handed down in his paper. This wasn't, it was not the case that they were just knocking out store windows uh, ignorantly. In Harlem, for instance, all of the stores are owned by white people. All the buildings are owned by white people. The black people are just there, paying rent, buying the groceries. But they don't own the stores, the clothing stores, food stores, any kind of store. Don't even own the homes that they live in. This, these are, this is all owned by outsiders. And in these rundown uh, apartment dwellings, the black man in Harlem pays more money for it than the man down in the rich Park Avenue section. It costs us higher, more money to live in the slum then it cost them to live down on Park Avenue. And black people in Harlem know this. And the white merchants charge us more, more money for food in Harlem. And it's the cheap food. It's the worst food. We have to pay more money for it than the man has to pay for it downtown. So black people know that they're being exploited and that their blood is being sucked and they see no way out of it. So finally when the spark thing is sparked, the white man is not there. He's gone. The merchant is not there. The landlord is not there. The one he considers to be the enemy isn't there. So they knock at his property. This is what makes them knock down the store windows and set fire to things and things of that sort. It's not that they're thieves, but they try and project the image to the public that this is being done by thieves and thieves alone. 
And they ignore the fact that, no, it is not thievery alone. It's a, it's a corrupt, vicious, hypocritical system that has castrated the black man. And the only way the black man can get back at it is to strike it in the only way he knows how. Well, that was Malcolm X, his final speech. I've always regarded him as one of my truly great teachers. I had an extraordinary experience some years ago in Montreal, Canada, at a Smithsonian Folklife Festival. I was hosting a small stage of blues singers. It was Robert Jr. Lockwood, Robert Johnson's stepson, Mississippi Fred McDowell, John Jackson. And, you know, they all sat and talked to each other in the little uh, stands in this little arena that we were singing in. There was another gentleman there who fascinated me by the name of Robert Pete Williams from way, way down in the Delta, who had sung his way out of prison, out of Angola Prison Farm, where he'd been put in on a charge of murder. When Robert Pete Williams came out to sing and play, all those other guys talked among themselves, and they wouldn't pay any attention. They wouldn't talk to him backstage. He got lonelier and lonelier. Uh, we, we took up to hanging out together and drinking together. And one day, Robert Pete Williams came out on that stage, and he started to play. He, didn't, he made up songs as he went along. He didn't know songs. And he let his fingers go wherever they wanted to wander. I never saw him fret more than two strings. One at a time, you could see those blues singers, those blues pickers, settle down and shut up. Because for the next 20 minutes... Robert Pete Williams laid down the blues. Let's listen to a little bit of Robert Pete Williams, my old friend, uh, singing a song about going into Angola, and then we'll see where that takes us. I say, God, a boy. Get up, have all menu. Yeah, you gotta send me to your pain. I ain't think about your lecture at all. Oh, you gotta send me to your pain. Oh, yeah, you have sent me to your pain. Lord, I ain't be that long. This is Allen Ginsberg speaking. The promise of death is not enough. The state of Pennsylvania wants to shut out Mumia Abu-Jamal's voice and enforce his silence. For 15 years, Mumia has been fighting not only to stay alive, he's been waging a battle for the freedom to write and to speak. Through a torrent of lockdowns, investigations, and mental torture, Mumia Abu-Jamal's voice continues to be heard. It has been over three decades since I last looked into his face, but I find him now sometimes hidden in the glimpse of a mirror. He was short of stature, shorter than I at 10 years, fully smoothly bald with a face the color of walnuts. 
He walked with a slight limp and smoked cigars, usually fillies. Although short, he wasn't slight, but was powerfully built, with a thickness not a fatness of form. His voice was deep, with the accents of the South wrapped around each word, sweet and sticky like molasses. His words often tickled his sons, and they tossed them among themselves like prizes found in the depths of crackerjack boxes, words that were wondrous in their newness, their rarity, their difference from all others heard. Boys, cut out that tussling, hear me? And the boys would stop their wrestling, their bellies near bursting with swallowed, swollen laughter, the word vibrating, sotto voce, barely heard in their throats. Tussling, 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 tussling. For days, for weeks, these silly little boys had a new toy, and with this one word could reduce the others to teary-eyed fits of fall-on-the-floor laughter. Tussling! He was a relatively old man when he seeded these sons, and because of his age of over half a century, he was openly affectionate in a way not usual for a man of his time. He kissed them, dressed them, and taught them by example that he loved them. He talked with them and walked and walked and walked with them. Dad, I want to ride, I whined. It ain't good for you to ride so much, boy. Walking is good for you. Good exercise for you. Decades later, I would hear that echo in one of my sons, and my reply would echo my father's. His eyes were the eyes of age, so discolored by time they seemed bluish, but there was a perpetual twinkle of joy in them, of love and living. He lived just over a decade into this son's life, and his untimely death from illness left holes in the souls of his sons. Without a tether, I sought and found father figures like Black Panther Captain Reggie Shell and Black Panther Party Defense Minister Huey P. Newton and indeed the Black Panther Party itself, which in this period of utter void taught me, fed me, and made me a part of a vast and militant family of revolutionaries. Many good men and women became my teachers, my mentors, and my examples of a revolutionary ideal, Zaid Malik Shakur, murdered by police when Asada was wounded and taken, Geronimo Gijaga, also known as Pratt, who commanded the LA chapter of the BPP with distinction and defended the party from deadly state attacks, himself a political prisoner, who because of the state's frame-up and judicial repression has been separated from his family and children for a quarter of a century. Here, in this restrictive place of fathers without their children, and men who were fatherless, one senses and sees the social costs of that loss. Those unloved find it virtually impossible to love, and those who were fatherless find themselves alienated and at war with their own communities and families. My own sons were babies when I was cast into this hell. Neither letters, cards, nor phone calls could heal the wounds that they and their sisters suffered during the long, lonely years of separation. Here, in this man-made hell, I find young men bubbling with bitter hatreds and roiling resentments against absent fathers, several who have taken to the odd habit of calling this writer Papa, certainly high irony, when one notes this writer was himself an absent father and now absent grandfather. Perhaps conscious of this irony, I resisted the nickname until I could no longer. 
I realized that I lived amidst a generation of young men drunk, not only with alienation, but also with father hunger. I had the Black Panther Party. Who did they have? Well, here they have Delbert Africa, Geronimo Gijaka, Chucky Africa, Mike, Ed, and Phil Africa, Dr. Mutulu Shakur, Sundiata Akoli, and other old heads like myself. I realized that I resented being papa to young men I didn't know, while being denied the opportunity to be a present father to the children of my flesh and my heart by the state's banishment. I was also in denial, for who was the old head they were calling? Certainly not I. It took a trip, a trek, to the shiny steel burnished mirror on the wall, where I found my father's face staring back at me to recognize the real. I am he, and they are me. From death row, this is Mumia Abu Jamal. Your children are not your children. They are the sons and the daughters of life's longing for itself. They come through you, but they are not from you. And though they are with you, they belong not to you. You can give them your love, but not your thoughts. They have their own thoughts. They have their own thoughts. You can house their bodies, but not their souls. For their souls dwell in a place of tomorrow, which you cannot visit, not even in your dreams. You can strive to be like them, but you cannot make them just like you. Strive to be like them, but you cannot make them just like you. Your children are not your children. They are the sons and the daughters of life, longing for itself. They come through you, but they are not from you. And though they are with you, they belong not to you. You can give them your love, but not your thoughts. They have their own thoughts. They have their own thoughts. You can house their bodies, but not their souls. For their souls dwell in a place of tomorrow, which you cannot visit, not even in your dreams. You can strive to be like them, but you cannot make them just like you. Strive to be like them, but you cannot make them just like you. Well, that all sounds like one long story, doesn't it? That was Robert Pete Williams from Mississippi, Ellen Ginsberg, Mumia Abu-Jamal, and then, of course, Sweet Honey in the Rock.
Oh, Kenny Hall, Fresno, California. Isn't that a jolly, isn't that a good-natured sound? Blind Kenny Hall. Let's see, well, there's a fellow that you really, everybody ought to hear a lot more from him. That man deserves one of those National Treasure Awards uh, that they give out in Washington every now and again. It was June the 19th, 1953. Julius and Ethel Rosenberg were electrocuted by the United States of America. They were electrocuted as nuclear spies. This is during the height of the Cold War, the blacklists, the McCarthy Times. J. Edgar Hoover, one of the most dangerous men that the world ever saw, had narrowly missed getting Klaus Fuchs, who had given uh, hydrogen bomb secrets to the Russians. Well, Klaus Fuchs went to Britain, where he was in prison for many years. But Hoover was enraged, and he had to have convictions. He had to have convictions to certify the whole process. Took the Rosenbergs. You know, the um, the uh, Lawyers Guild, once a year they try, retry one of the classic cases. And they thought they might want to try doing a reenactment of the Rosenberg case, and they couldn't do it because they said there was no, they could find no reason for an indictment. But they went to the chair. They left two small children behind. Those two children were adopted and were raised by Abel Mirapol. Uh, who took them into his home and uh, and brought them up. Abel Mirapol wrote under the name of Lewis Allen, wrote poetry, wrote songs under the name of Lewis Allen. There's a reason for all of this, and I'll get to it. Two poems uh, from... I have a, a rare, rare old book of, of Lewis Allen's poetry, a poem about the Rosenbergs. Warning, verboten... Do not speak of peace, or you will die like these two. Do not work for peace. Do not think of peace. Do not speak of brotherhood, or a better world, or a world without war, without poverty, without profit. For if you do, we will brand you a traitor and spy and kill you as we killed these two. For our creed is war and conquest and profit. Warning. Verboten. And then his poem called Ghetto. Upon our limbs life hangs loose, who are indentured to disuse. We have no place we may take root who wear a street upon each foot. We know the pangs of hunger felt as time becomes a tightening belt. We see how greed and power can annul the dignity of man. Our children shall have what we missed. They gather lightning in their fist. That poem occurs on the same page in his book of poetry with a song he wrote. Finally recorded after fighting with the record companies for a long, long time. Finally recorded by Billie Holiday. Lewis Allen's song, Strange Fruit. Swinging 
in the southern breeze strange fruit hanging from the poplar trees From a review in the New York Times, April 19, 1993, by music critic Bernard Holland. Mr. Farrakhan, spiritual leader to the nation of Islam, came to this quiet city bearing not a cudgel, but a violin. Before an audience of about 300 at Reynolds Auditorium, and under the watchful eyes of at least 50 young bodyguards, a vocal militant in this American black Muslim movement ended an or- orchestral concert conducted by Michael Morgan by walking on stage and playing the Mendelssohn Violin Concerto. Can Louis Farrakhan play the violin? God bless us, he can. He makes a lot of mistakes, not surprising for a man who had virtually abandoned the instrument for 40 years and has only owned one since 1974. Yet Mr. Farrakhan's sound is that of the authentic player. It is wide, deep, and full of energy that makes the violin gleam. His thrusting sense of phrase has musical power to it, even though some of the erratic movement kept Mr. Morgan and his musicians scrambling at times. After the performance, resplendent in a double-breasted suit, Farrakhan talked of reconciliation with America's Jews, and in terms that seemed, if not desperate, at least terribly urgent. 
He acknowledged the symbolism in his playing of music by a European Jew, although he also said he had not known Mendelssohn was Jewish until two years ago. The Mendelssohn family converted to Christianity. Speaking in a quiet but insistent voice, he said he would, quote, try to do with music what cannot be done with words, and try to undo with music what words have done, unquote. Asked why black Americans should pursue classical music when they possess a rich musical culture to begin with, he said, Elvis Presley shared the soul of black music's best performers. He was a reflection of our life experience. Why shouldn't we do the same? Black artists should feel the freedom to reflect the God in Mendelssohn's music, just as whites are touched by the God in us. His teacher was a pupil of Leopold Auer, who himself was a teacher of Heifetz. Well, now, like I say, it's up to us to shut up and listen. Oh, that's something to mull over and ponder. Life is fraught with contradiction. It's wading through them successfully by asking questions, by keeping our eyes and ears open that we hopefully are finally able to do it. Speaking of contradiction, was uh, the last Martin Luther King memorial uh, on his birthday that I that I ran into this contradiction. I was reading the newspaper. We were doing a, a show with Pete Seeger uh, on that event and a bunch of other marvelous musicians over in San Mateo here in California. There was an article in the, in the San Francisco Chronicle, and I clipped it out and kept it, um, about the memorial in uh, Atlanta uh, with Coretta Scott King there and, every, and all the relatives. And it said that the I Have a Dream speech which he intoned in 1963, was recited at that memorial by the star of the television series Homicide. Does anybody perceive a contradiction in that? You know? Every year I hear Martin Luther King as a civil rights leader I hear the virtue of that extolled and extolled, and I hear his pacifism, his nonviolence downplayed and downplayed. Look, Martin Luther King has been eulogized by presidents responsible for the bombing of thousands of people. Now let's go over it again from his stride toward freedom, 1958, the six points of nonviolence. First, nonviolence is a method and a way of life that demands courage and strength It is never a passive acquiescence to evil. Second, it does not seek to defeat the opponent, but to win that person's friendship and understanding. Third, it is the knowledge that it is the hurtful behavior that is inappropriate, not the person doing it. Fourth, practitioners of nonviolence are willing to accept violence if necessary, but never to inflict it. Fifth, the nonviolent resistor avoids not only external physical violence, but also internal violence of spirit. She or he refuses to cause physical harm and refuses to hate. And sixth, the practice of nonviolence is based on the conviction that the universe is on the side of justice. In other words, my friends, 
Nonviolence is not just a tactic. You use it here and you don't use it there. It is a way of life. And as Martin Luther King believed in his soul, force is the weapon of the weak. Dr. King. Now it is possible because of the time difference to take a flight from Tokyo, Japan on Sunday morning and arrive in Seattle, Washington on the preceding Saturday night. And when your friends meet you at the airport and ask when you left Tokyo, you will have to say, I left tomorrow. (laughs) This is the kind of world in which we live. This is a bit humorous, but I'm trying to laugh a basic fact into all of it, and it is simply this. Through our scientific genius, we've made of the world a neighborhood. And now, through our moral and ethical commitment, we must make of it a brotherhood. We must all learn to live together as brothers, or we will all perish together as fools. All I'm saying is simply this, that all life is interrelated. We are caught in an inescapable network of mutuality tied in a single garment of destiny. Whatever affects one directly affects all indirectly. As long as that is extreme poverty in this world, no man can be totally rich even if he has a billion dollars. As long as diseases are rampant and millions of people cannot expect to live more than 28 or 30 years, no one can be totally healthy even if he just got a checkup in the finest clinic of the nation. Strangely enough, I can never be what I ought to be until you are what you ought to be, and you can never be what you ought to be until I am what I ought to be. Oh, my. Yes. Interlocked, all in it together. There's a marvelous musical chorus uh, of people around the, the San Francisco Bay Area here in California called Vukani Mawethu. They've toured South Africa uh, several times. We're going to listen to them sing a song by Enoch Manyaki. He wrote it, I believe, in 1897, called God Bless Africa. Here is Vukani Mawethu singing Kosi Sikele e Africa, the anthem of the ANC. Morena Bolucas, Jabasa Jesus, O 
never turn back. Yes. I understand this is the theme song of the Mississippi Project. Yes. Well, ask everyone to stand and join hands.
Well, this is Utah Phillips, and you've been listening to Loafer's Glory, the Hobo Jungle of the Mind. The celebration of black history is part of what we all need if we're ever going to get together. See you again. Now let's listen to Langston Hughes himself, a year before his passing, reciting his poem, Rivers. I've known rivers. I've known rivers ancient as the world and older than the flow of human blood in human veins. My soul has grown deep like the rivers. I bathed in the Euphrates when dawns were young. I built my hut near the Congo, and it lulled me to sleep. I looked upon the Nile and raised the pyramids above it. I heard the singing of the Mississippi when Abe Lincoln went down to New Orleans, and I've seen its muddy bosom turn all golden in the sunset. I've known rivers, ancient, dusky rivers. My soul has grown deep like the rivers. <laughs> 